Welcome to the Rodcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rod. So my guest today uh, wears many hats, uh, among them uh, filmmaker, professional speaker, consultant, book author, and, um, and also investigator into forms of all types of, of grief. Um, over the past, over 20 years, she's worked on investigating her own grief and the grief of others. And her most recent book called When Grief Equals Love includes interviews with people who have suffered different parts of, of life-changing uh, grief. Um, Lizzie Pinkering, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for, for joining us. So, so I thought we'd start off in maybe diving into what is a grief uh, investigator? Well, um, I don't know. I think that term was born um, out of the fact that I don't like the term expert very much. <laughs> I think one of the most important things for human beings, for everybody, is that we stay curious about whatever it is we do, whatever we're interested in, whatever our life experience is. And the term expert seems too all-encompassing in that it says, I know a lot. <laughs> and sometimes I feel like I know nothing. And so investigator is because I'm still investigating. I'm still curious. Um, I still, through my own personal loss, work every day to to be as happy as I possibly can be naturally and organically because I've investigated. And I think if I hadn't investigated my own personal grief, um, well, I certainly wouldn't be doing the work I'm doing today. And, you know, a lot of my work is informed by my clients who are people going through grief and I learn from them. I'm not teaching them anything. I'm guiding them through personal experience and through listening to many, many people who've gone through grief and where I've learned that the same themes emerge from different people in different experiences. And, you know, I've just learned from them. So, yes, hence investigator. <laughs> I, I like that term. Um, yeah, we should we should definitely scrap the the um, the expert, especially for for a lot of the you know, the, the science related stuff uh, we've seen. It's just, it's just a better better term uh, for sure. So, so on that note, I mean, tell us a little bit about what, what it is you, you uh, spend your, your time on and how do, you, how do you help others? So I, um, I've developed this work really well over the last 22 years, as you said, but particularly in the last couple of years, it's really come together. Um, I, I went through great grief when my son Harry died 22 years ago, my eldest child. Um, he was six and a half and he had a genetic condition that all my children, male and female, um, could have had. Everyone had a one in four chance of having this condition. But it was through a recessive gene, so we didn't know of its existence until Harry had it, by which time my son Cam was already born. He was six weeks old when Harry was diagnosed. And my daughter Emily was born 
thanks to being able to test in vitro. And um, that was really the start of this journey, I suppose, of great investigation because I very quickly identified that my grief started with that diagnosis. It didn't start with Harry's death. It started with a diagnosis. And, you know, that's when our world was turned upside down. For other people, it might be something like an accident and a sudden death that causes great grief. But I think when you're given a diagnosis, where in Harry's particular case with his condition, um, it was very clear that there, there wasn't hope for a cure at the time or, or even treatment. Um, that was very harsh. And finding a way of going forward when you're given no hope is immense you know and I immediately recognized that I needed to start learning about it learning how do you survive grief how do you move forward how do you live as happy a life as you can because also we wanted to give Harry the best possible life in the circumstances and our other children their best possible lives too so we couldn't sink we, we needed to sort of rise above it and with it, um, but it wasn't going to go away. So these were all the thoughts that were immediately going through my head in a sort of panic-ridden state at the beginning. And I suppose it was a very slow and very gradual process to adapt to this enormous change that was thrown at us, this curveball. And, um, you know, it was through through reading and learning and listening to other people that I, I would get clues as, as to how to survive this pain. And, um, and, and so over the years, Harry, Harry died age six and a half. Um, and obviously that was another enormous turmoil, turmoil to adapt to again. We were unprepared. I don't think anything prepares you for the death of your child or anyone you love. It doesn't matter whether it's your child or your parent, or your grandparent, if you have loved them deeply or even if it's a complicated love and they haven't loved you back, there's <laughs> still immense pain. So that was another learning curve over many years. And um, I ended up working in the children's hospice where Harry died as, as in the fundraising team Um but working very closely with the bereavement team and I learned enormously from them. Um, we together set up peer-to-peer -peer support for parents supporting other parents. So I listened to the stories of others, developed deep friendships with other parents, other bereaved parents. And um, then also through collaborating with a charity called the Good Grief Project, I learned more I also made a feature film, produced a feature film with director Polly Steele on generational trauma. And again, although it was the drama, it was a true story. We were dramatizing and I learned massively again from, from that experience over a few years. And so two years ago when COVID hit, I developed this work giving grief support one-to-one -to, -one to people, but also educating companies about grief because through COVID obviously a lot of companies were, were going through the grief of their staff. They were having to adapt to change en masse as companies, global companies. 
And I started making podcasts and giving talks on grief. And then companies started paying me to give one-to-one grief guidance to their staff, not just on bereavement by death, but also diagnosis, divorce and workplace change, because those are all major curveballs that were thrown and the symptoms are the same. (laughs) So, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. (laughs) And before I ask you about the sort of the workplace uh, stuff, um, you mentioned how you know you can't really prepare for 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 this but um you know having having said that you mentioned you know with with uh with cam and and emily you they probably were exposed to at least some um form of I don't want to say prevention, but at least, you know, they learned about it. Whereas I think the majority of people have absolutely zero contact with it, especially when they're they're growing up. So they, they have no, you know, well, I am one of them have no, I'd say no skill set uh, growing up. It's not something you're taught at school. Um, there's really nothing to equip you. No one really talks about it. So, I mean, was there, was there anything you sort of thought I'm going to make sure that both Cam and Emily, you know, learn this at a very young age um, to to at least give them, you know, some form of of skills, you know, growing up. Yes. Um, That's such a great question. I, I think siblings are so often ignored in not just through an illness, but also through bereavement, as you say, and they suffer so much. And their lives terrified me through what they were going through and what we were going through. And I I didn't have any skill set to deal with this. I had no idea. But I was very, very lucky in that we were under the care for respite care where we would all go as a family and stay at our local children's hospice, which also happened to be the first children's hospice in the world. And its anniversary is this year. It'll be 40 years old as the foundation of the world's children's hospices. It was Helen and Douglas House in Oxford, founded by uh, an Anglican nun called Sister Frances Dominica for all faiths and none. And she, her blueprint was just extraordinary because when she laid out the bedrooms in this hospice, and for children, it's not just end of life care, it's for long-term care where we lived at home, but we had about 30 days respite care at the hospice. And it meant we were then with other families going through similar things. We had community there and we had true expertise, although they would also say they were still learning from all of us, um, from the care team there who who taught us and they helped us and supported us. So through that journey with my children, with all three of my children in handling how Harry faced his illness and how his siblings learned to live with it alongside it and, and beyond it, they guided us. And that was so lucky. And a lot of the work I do is based on what I learned from the bereavement team on how to cope with my younger children. And their message was always, never, ever lie to them. Tell them the truth, but let them guide the pace. 
So my daughter Emily was two when Harry died and my son Cam was five. And I know they don't mind me talking about this because they've been interviewed for my book and they were very supportive of it. And, and they're my first two interviews in my book because I, my book covers my diaries of when they were young and what we went through. And then later on, I interview them as adults. They're 23 and 26 now. And so the message was, don't lie to them. So even from the beginning when Harry died, it was don't tell them he's sleeping. Tell them he's died and explain what death means. They helped us with some reading suggestions, none of which ever quite hit the point. Um, I found it difficult to find children's books to help them as siblings. Um, maybe that's my next book. <laughs> um, but... The guidance was, yes, speak to them honestly. And and so they led the way. I wasn't proactive in talking to them, but when they asked questions, it had to be honest. And they asked fearless questions and they were so tough to answer. My daughter, Emily, in reading my diaries, because I journaled through this time, in reading my diaries and going back for the book, my daughter, Emily, for six months, whenever the phone rang said Harry question mark she thought it might be Harry on the phone and that's she was you know getting close to she was sort of two and a half then and could barely speak but she could say Harry they adored each other so her loss was immense and we all know how formative those toddler years are we're told it constantly but that was her experience Cam at eight suffered horrific nightmares and said he didn't want to be in this family without Harry. That was three years later. His grief was enormous. And again, with the guidance of actually Harry's godfather, a dear friend called Yon, whose brother died when he was young. He had lived experience and remembered because he was eight when his brother died. He was able to guide us and say, I think it's good that Cam's getting all this out. I think it's really good and I think it will pass because he's being allowed to let it out. And he was right. And actually Cam doesn't remember that time. I've asked him and he doesn't remember that. He remembers a lot about Harry and his grief, but he doesn't remember those nightmares. And yet to us at the time, they were enormous. You know, I worried for his future and his mental health. But he came through it because I suppose he was in a safe place to let his grief out. And we didn't ever try and, you know, curb it in any way. And then Emily, aged eight, would suffer at school because there was a tree planted for Harry with daffodils around it in memory of him. And she hated it when a football would be cooked into them. And she had a teacher who was wonderful, Mrs. Randay, who kept photos of Harry's, Harry in her drawer by her desk. And whenever Emily wanted to go and talk to her about Harry because he was at the same school, she did that. And we were able to be proactive in speaking to the teachers, speaking to Helen House and asking for their guidance, but also telling them when the children were suffering particularly. Um, but it was difficult at school for a while at primary school for Cam because they all three had been to the same school and I knew Cam was suffering over Harry but it was the school would sometimes say oh it can't be that it's three years ago and and I knew it was you know and it, it it's hard people think time heals and it doesn't 22 years on I I 
feel just the same. He's my son. He, you know, my love for him never changes. Never. He's just not physically here. And that's impossible, actually. It's totally impossible to to understand for me, let alone for friends. So that hasn't changed in 22 years. But my ability to cope with that knowledge has changed because I've worked on it. And, and that's, I mean, that's so, such an important, I think, message and, and you know, when, when you were talking, the, you mentioned something as, as, I guess, simple in principle as not lying to, to your kids. And it's just something we are not taught. Um, and I know you mentioned, you know, previously in, in, um, in other interviews where you say that people actually would, would walk you know, across the street to, to avoid you um, because they didn't know what to, what to say. And, and I know that's, that's probably something a lot of us, you know, deal with when, when somebody else is, is uh, grieving. We, we just have, have no experience in, 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 in what to say. I mean, have, have you sort of seen that landscape changing as we we become slightly more comfortable talking about mental health or or is it, do we still have a long way to go would you say i think yes with many aspects of mental health it's improving but i still don't think it's improving with grief because every company i go to where i speak with staff and some of these talks are general grief guidance talks to whole companies about supporting other people through grief as well because we're never going to escape it we're all going to know somebody going through immense grief or we're going to suffer it ourselves that's a, a dead cert <laughs> excuse the irony but um there is still fear and whenever i go into these companies the questions i get asked are what do we say <laughs> and so people are still fearful you know and i'm fearful you know, just because I've witnessed so much and talked to so many people about it and listened to what they say, it doesn't mean I don't get fearful about it. I'm still scared when somebody's going through something and I, I feel, you know, how much do I keep in touch? Especially because I think so, when you're going through deep stress through a diagnosis, an illness or death or divorce which is huge for so many people a massive grief that's life shattering life altering it takes you from your community very often it it resets your entire world I, I don't think you're right I don't think people realize how much of a traumatic experience is because of course you know you have countries where the the incident is like 40 percent 50 percent of of you know recent marriages end up in divorce but i remember reading a um scientific paper where they a bunch of psychiatrists psychologists got together and they ranked um i can't remember how they, they actually measured it but they ranked the level of traumatic impact that different life events uh had on on human uh sort of life and the first one was loss of a child it's the highest on the list and then for me, it was very surprising that, that divorce was number two, and it was higher than than um, 
you know, death of a sibling, death of a parent, um, and everything else, you know, you can imagine kidnapping. I mean, all, a bunch of stuff really. Um, and that was, that was really surprising. And I don't think people, you know, re- realize that. They, they don't, Rod. And actually, you know, I've been through both the death of a child and, and divorce. And the divorce really ultimately as a result of us grieving differently and you know that that's a very common thing too that when parents go through the death of a child it can often lead to divorce eventually you know we I was married 26 years and Harry's diagnosis came about four or five years into our marriage so we did very well and we really loved each other but ultimately we were we had met because we were And again, this is talked about in my book, so I'm not speaking out of turn because my my ex-husband and I are very, I hate the word ex too, because my husband of 26 years is one of the most important people in my life and always will be as the father of my children. Actually, we've just been away at a music festival. We live 10 minutes away from each other and we don't see each other all the time, but when we do, we really value each other and you know we we've actually we were at the festival with both our new partners and we and we had lovely you know exchanges and conversations together but again that's taken a huge amount of work and time and you know we we didn't survive the death of our child together because we met as opposites and balanced each other very well as parents in that I'm very emotional and he he's wired differently to that, you know, and 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 so in going through grief, we we went through it very separately and differently, and that caused a rift. But it wasn't anyone's fault, and but the ripple effects are immense, as in all grief, you know, of changes in community and changes in where you live and how you live and the way your friends react to you is enormous too in the same way that people just don't know how to behave post-divorce and it divides people and oh it's so multi-layered and so complex and actually for me personally when we went through divorce even though we did it as amicably as amicably as possible for everybody concerned and even lived next door to each other for nine months afterwards it was still because it didn't it was cumulative grief and I speak a lot about cumulative grief so for me it wasn't just a divorce it was the death of my son in between that the death of my parents I'm an only child and then divorce and so the the tsunami of grief that hit me by surprise when I went through divorce that was one of the worst periods of my entire life because because when I went through the death of my son I had my family around me this represented a time of being very very alone and and again the 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 bomb going off of it affecting all our friends relationships family everybody trying to support our children through it and, and causing, feeling like you've caused more suffering for your children, even though it was unavoidable. It, it was enormous. And that's a, a normal landscape for anyone that goes through it. So, yes, I, I you know, I, 
my work is originally was purely death was was you know bereavement work and talking about that sort of guidance but after the bereavement talks the grief guidance talks many people were coming forward after them asking for help because they identified from the talk that the grief they were suffering was the same <laughs> you know the same set of of symptoms that were resonating so yeah so I'm, so i mean when when people realize that i i guess some of the the strategies on on coping are, are similar regardless of of the event it would you know spark a lot of interest uh, especially within organizations where i think it's moving towards building resilience with with employees um and and i wanted to ask you on on that you know my one of my biggest pet peeves with with any mental health or well-being program is that a lot of organizations um take a a very sort of one-off or ad hoc approach many times to, to these things. So I always say it's like brushing your teeth. You know, if, if you brush your teeth once a month, then your teeth are probably gonna fall out. You have to brush your teeth every single day. Um, and it's the same with these, you know, programs. If you do a six week, four week, six week program on bereavement, but there's no follow-up or there's no continuity i mean the the effects will be there but they'll probably be short-lived i mean how how do you have that conversation with you know some of the the employers to to change that mindset that it's it's not a mental health month or mental health week but it's it's brushing your teeth every day oh rod you're so right and i love that analogy of the the teeth brushing it's so true and it's that's the huge problem that a lot of companies tick box and and so you know when I have an initial conversation which is very often with the head of HR to start with that's usually my first point of contact in a company um, very often they'll say oh we're covered for grief provision you know we've got we've got this provision it, it which is normally therapy or counseling for six weeks after somebody's had been through a, a, a loss and always I say and then what and there's never an answer to that and so you know my gold standard that I try and instill in companies is that is to go in and give a grief talk which would be 40 minutes and a 20 minute Q&A with staff that could be online or in person or both you know in person and streamed um, increasingly now I'm actually trying to go I'm spent I've got some bookings for September where I'm spending the whole day in the company so I can live stream the talk do it in person with some people who are in the office due to hybrid working it can be recorded it then sits on their intranet and then we work on their grief guideline lines that are on their intranet so that would be the start so staff can go into the intranet and see what's available and get information, reading suggestions, all sorts of things, talk, and see the talk. It makes it provides a bridge. It provide it makes it more accessible for them to see what's there, what's available, and what the advice is. So they can always see that talk on the internet. Then hopefully the company will offer grief guidance, and it could be my USP is that I'm not a counsellor 
or a therapist. There are amazing counsellors and therapists out there in the world. And I very often will signpost people to them if I think that would be better help for them. Um, what I offer is more general grief guidance because I think a lot of people don't want to unpick their whole lives. They want to know how to survive their grief. And, and so that's the work I do. I've developed my own course on, on how to do that. And, um, and it's very much based around who that person is and what they really need. Um, and so then hopefully the company will send people for one-to-one -one grief guidance on death, divorce, diagnosis or workplace change. One of my clients who are a law firm have actually, one of the people I helped through, through grief guidance has set up their own bereavement group within the law firm and they now meet every couple of months so not too often but enough to have it in place there for anyone who wants to join for any reason at all it could be because someone's supporting someone else through grief and wants to go along There's, they can anyone can go and I think in all this work the importance is you don't have to have just experienced somebody dying it could be that you've been triggered at work and you actually experienced the death of a parent when you were young or the death of a sibling when you were young. Five, 10, 15, 20 years on, something could trigger you like divorce or someone dying in the workplace. It could be anything and you need more help. You need a progression of the work you might have already done. When I went through divorce, I, I had nine weeks of therapy that was invaluable. I also did mindset coaching using hypnotherapy. I tried all, I, I started doing yoga every day and breathing work and meditation because I had to bring myself back from the brink five years ago, you know, and that's, that's, I'm 22 years on from the death of my son, but I'm fragile and vulnerable because of what's happened to me. And I, it's my responsibility to enjoy my life because, and I lead a really happy life, but only because I do that work. And I recognize when I'm reaching a tipping point, then I have to do more and maybe find new ways, maybe revisit, revisit, revisit things I've dropped, you know, but it's, it's ongoing and it's interesting, you know. So that would be my gold standard for a company is, is these multi layers of help but it's always there for people it's not just in the first year of grief very often people are getting a lot of attention in the first year when something's happened to them something traumatic and everybody's there supporting them very often it's two or three years on that they really can hit a low so I might give two or three sessions in the first year of some with of somebody's trauma but then I'm always there for them in future and they might have a top up once a year. And if their company can support them in that, they're not going to lose their staff. I know so many clients who have left their jobs because of the silence around their bereavement and it's easier for them to go to a new company and start again where nobody knows. But then that's not good either to go somewhere else and for people not to know how to support you, it's so much better to be open and supported well. And and I wanted to ask you um, a question on on that. I mean, you you hit the nail on the head where a lot of times in the beginning, 
people get a lot of support, you know, people are reaching out to them. Um, but then as, as years go by, it becomes less and, and less. And so I read, I read once that, you know, your, your friends and, and family who are going through this will have dozens of people reaching out to them in the beginning, but, but very few, if any, will reach out, you know, uh, as time goes by and, and, and so that, uh, was just like tattooed in, in my mind. And so when I, when I, I see somebody going through that, I, I try to, you know, after a month, six months, whatever, you know, still ask them what they're doing, but, but I, I've never known, you know, what's, what's the, what's the right amount of time? Because I, I think probably I'm not the only one in thinking, you know, if you ask somebody two years, three years down the line, it's just not really conventional. Um, so what, what, you know, what's, what's the advice you would, you would give? Forever. Forever. Yeah. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a gift when somebody asks you and I'm not just, none of what I say is just me talking. I hope I'm voicing, well, I know that I'm voicing the people I've spoken to who are not just my clients, but they're also the friends I made in the children's hospice world. I've never, I've never had anybody say to me that there's a timeline who's actually experienced it. And so, you know, I could probably count on one hand the people who who really proactively remember certain points in the year and who proactively remember to ask about Harry as his birthday's coming up or his anniversary. And I mean, those are only two days of the year. For me, it's every day. But it's such a gift when people share memories with me, when they um, just bring him up to just talk about him. It's an absolute gift. And in fact, my, my friends, dear friends and collaborators at the Good Grief Project, um, the charity that funds um, and hosts retreats for bereaved parents, uh, they, they actually made a film called Say Their Name for that reason, because, you know, there is a silence as the years go by. And I always say in my talks, don't, don't feel that you have upset somebody if they cry when you do bring up the name of their loved one because or their loved situation, whatever it was. It doesn't always have to be a person um, because it's such a relief often to be asked that you may get emotional. And, and that's a gift again because, you know, people suffer from PTSD through often holding holding and storing everything in their bodies as you know all too well you know and I if somebody cries you you are helping them release that by asking the questions so that's a gift you've given them the absolute gift of enabling them to cry in a safe place because you asked so see that as a positive don't ever see that as a negative and you know our egos can say I made them cry (laughs) no you didn't you enabled them to cry and it's so important. Um, I, I, have, um, I have refugees in my life in various different ways and have had for a while, um, have a very dear Sudanese friend 
who had a hell of a journey to get here over three years and really, really challenging. And at the moment, three Ukrainian friends who, who have come here. And we speak constantly about the challenges they face. And I know they don't mind me speaking about this either, that their grief is all day, every day, and so challenging because they've lost everything. They've come here with a suitcase. They've had to leave everything. And including family members who are in danger. So every day they get, you know, get messages to say that they're okay still so far. They feel guilt at being here in safety. They feel, which is a sort of survivor's guilt, I guess, that I have also experienced and my children have too. There's so much that we talk about that makes me realize this universal global grief through war that I don't think I'd really evaluated as being these same symptoms, these same themes, you know, and the tears, the letting out the tears in a safe space almost daily at the moment, the, the unknown, the landscape ahead that is totally unknown that's one of the worst things of grief, I think. And they're going through the same, but in a very, very magnified way. Uh, more than I could ever imagine. And living beside them is extraordinary because, again, we're all learning so much from them. And also supporting them, hopefully, with this guidance of grounding ourselves and not looking too far ahead and trying to enjoy the lighter moments in the day without guilt in order to survive and sleeping well and eating well and meditating and doing some yoga and gentle healing and lots of sleep. And it's exactly what I went through, but theirs is so awful because there is no knowledge of whether they'll ever get home and whether this is now their new home. But, you know, I've, I've, Oh, I don't know. It's just extraordinary being alongside that and a massive new learning about what grief means. Yeah. No, I, I can only imagine, you know, that you talked about the uncertainty of, you know, the future. And that's, that's a very difficult thing to, I think, process. We all like to have answers, don't we? We like to have some control over our lives. And when that goes... It's very, very hard to find these tiny incremental ways forward whilst just trying to remain in the presence, in the present, you know, trying to remain in the present, trying to ground yourself and find the ground even <laughs> to find your breath. You know, it's really like what well, is starting again, but holding very close everything that's gone before that you value and bringing that with you into your new life. And that's what grief is to me. It's this continuing bond. It's the opposite of closure. We don't want closure when we've loved something or someone, in their case, their lives so much. They had beautiful lives in Kiev with dear friends, community, work, a home, all those things. They didn't want to, none of them wanted to leave that. Our Sudanese friend, 
loved his tribal community on a mountainside where they didn't have electricity or even running water. But they had a beautiful life and war destroyed that. And, you know, we, we'd, none of us want this grief, but we have to learn to live with it. And the idea of continuing bonds is that you you bring through all the things you loved and valued with you into the future and you find a way of connecting with them deeply in a way that is comfortable and not wallowing in it, but you can move forward healthily with the memories beside you into the current day. And, you know, it's, it's the opposite of closure. It's not closure. It's bringing it with you, but healthily. Yeah, I love that concept. Uh, not closure, but taking it with you and learning and building on that. Um, I know, I know you have to go. Uh, don't want to keep you from your your next next appointment, but um, I wanted to ask you. I ask all my guests um, if if there is one thing that you've come across recently, whether it's uh, an app. Uh, anything, a recipe, a practice, a new technique, anything that you've come across recently that is has really improved your health uh, incrementally that, that you would share, um, what, what would it be? I think it's probably one that's quite well known to people because it became, you know, she became a bit of a global hit. Actually, am I lost? Am I allowed to? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course, yeah. <laughs> My first one actually is is the most recent, but it's in it, through lockdown. It was yoga with Adrian, the Texan yoga teacher, who put up so many free yoga sessions, but they're very safe ones. There, she's a very extraordinary practitioner, and she's helped me to develop my yoga into a daily practice but with the choice of choosing the session by by how you're feeling by emotion there's yoga to change perspective there's yoga for joy there's yoga for sadness yoga for grief these are all separate sessions or by time sometimes if i'm time poor and i haven't got up in time like this morning i I did 15 minutes instead of 20 or 30 or an hour. And so I can still do it. And anything is better than nothing. So I can still do it, but it would be 15 minutes. And so I'd search by time, yoga with Adrian by time. And also by body parts. So you can search yoga for lower back pain, yoga for the neck. So she, that, I think that's just such an amazing way of making it um, really, truly accessible to anyone of any ability and and so that's my it's on youtube and she's amazing and my other one is dr edith egger who's the holocaust survivor who's having a netflix documentary made about her she's written two books the choice and the gift and she's now 94 or 95 her books were written in her 90s and she has survived the holocaust and addresses her grief every day. She's a psychologist. She's a refugee. She changed everything in her life and has survived it, but acknowledges it that she still works every day on it. And she's my absolute inspiration. She really is. And a friend, Francie, recommended her to me 
uh, who's also a survivor of great grief. And I took her recommendation. And now I, I get all my clients reading Dr. Edith Egger because she's remarkable. I will, I will add that one to the list after When Grief Equals Love. <laughs> oh, thank you, Rod. Yes, my, my book is coming out in May 23 and it is available for pre-order. So if anybody would like to pre-order it, I'd be so grateful. Oh, great. Maybe we can put the link, can we? Yes, I will add the link and uh, and then for your, your social media accounts as, as well. Thank you so much. But, uh, I just wanted to thank you. This has been um, fantastic and, and uh, great speaking to you as always. Um, very, very insightful. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Oh, Rod, thank you for inviting me. I mean, I know we really connected when we did another podcast together. And um, I was so thrilled when I got your message about this. I really was. And I've really loved listening to your other podcasts too. Oh, thanks, Lizzie. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening, folks. If you enjoyed that, please hit subscribe, like, and share. See you next time.